Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Historian Splaining. So this will be another installment in my series on the history of the United States in 100 objects. And this will be the eighth object, a Pueblo ceramic communion chalice. So this particular object, it's a piece of pottery, uh, and it was found at an ancestral Jemez Pueblo called Giusewa in what's today uh, New Mexico. And it was unearthed from the ruins of the convento, or priest's quarters, built as part of a Catholic mission attached to the Pueblo. It is an example of Jemez-style black-on-white pottery, so white stoneware with with black hand-applied decoration. It was found at the site in 1937 in the convento, as I said, and based on where it was found and the, the structure and the layer it was deposited in, it was probably made and used for a short time and discarded between 1598 and sometime in the early 1600s, right? So, so I listed it as circa 1600, but this mission that the convento was part of was created in 1598. So it might have been created right when those missionaries first arrived or not long after, uh, and it could have been discarded anywhere as late as 1659, but probably probably earlier than that. So this artifact, scholars have sometimes pointed to it. It's a very interesting early uh, remnant of the Spanish colonization and missionization of the Pueblos in New Mexico. And it's been pointed to as an interesting example of hybridity or syncretism or however you want to term it, some sort of interaction and collision of different societies. Because on the one hand, it's a Roman Catholic implement of worship, right? It's used in the Eucharistic service, but it was clearly made and decorated by an indigenous artist in the style that they were accustomed to. Right, as I said, in the black and white pottery style. So it's an interesting kind of combination of of meanings and influences. On the one hand, chalices are very important symbols in Christianity, especially Catholicism. Right, uh, the chalice is the vessel that holds the communion wine and specifically that holds it at the time when it's consecrated by the priest and changed or uh, transubstantiated into the blood of Christ. So a chalice is actually like a stand-in for Christ himself. It holds the blood of Christ at the time when the priest or sometimes other worshipers as well receive it. Right. And so it has a tremendous symbolic and theological importance. And you can think of legendary objects like the Holy Grail is more or less the same thing. It's a chalice that was believed to hold the blood of Christ. 
right? And so, so any communion chalice can be seen in a way as almost like a little holy grail, okay? But as I said, this one was produced by an indigenous artist and uh, probably a woman, probably an indigenous woman. Most of the pottery was made by women. The black on white decorative style is a very ancient style, you know, and there's very fine, very sophisticated southwestern Pueblo pottery that goes back more than a thousand years and can be, you know, highly valuable when it's found. Uh, and this is an instance of that, although on the one hand, it's it's a new form, right? The, the chalices are not something that people in the Southwest made, right? They made pots and bowls, you know, vessels for food and grain. They did not make drinking chalices. That was a new and unusual form. It also has crosses on it. So uh, if you look at the bowl of the chalice, which is broken in several pieces and it hasn't all been recovered, but you can, because it's broken, you can look right like a cross section into the actual bowl of the chalice and you can see that around the rim there are concentric black lines, which is conventional in, in the Pueblo style, but down in the bottom there's also a cross and underneath on the bottom of the base there's a cross. So clearly this artist integrated basic Christian symbols into the chalice. It also, you could say, is a bit more crude than most traditional surviving pottery from the Pueblo people tends to be. It's a little more lumpy. Uh, it's not as finely finished a piece. And that may be because uh, it was an unfamiliar form, or it may be because uh, it was not being made for the use of the artist's own household or family or clan. It was being made for an outsider. Right? So most likely what happened, although we can't know, most likely what happened is a Franciscan missionary priest commissioned the chalice from a local artist. Right? And she made it according to, to the standards that she knew, but again, not as finely finished as some other work you might find. So where does this chalice fit in to the bigger history of this whole region and into what later becomes the United States? Well, let's talk about the particular Pueblo where it was found. So this Pueblo is called Giusewa, and I'm actually not positive of the pronunciation. I was never able to find a, an audio recording of it. But it's called something like Giusewa, and it's one of the early or ancient sites of a people called the Chemis, which in Spanish was spelled J-E-M-E-Z. That's how they wrote it down. Uh, but the Chemis people are very old people, and they originated farther north, so further up in what's now Utah and Colorado. But sometime around 1300 or so AD, they migrated down as part of a large, massive movement of people down into southward into what's now New Mexico. And if you remember my third lecture about the history of the United States and 100 Objects was about the Scarlet Macaw Feather Sash, which was made in about the 11 or 1200s and then abandoned in a cave in Utah. And it seems that it was abandoned at a time when many of the Pueblos 
around that area were being abandoned and some were being closed or burned, destroyed, and the people were migrating southward right, into New Mexico and Arizona. And this was probably because of changing climate. The climate was getting colder. Those more northern and high elevation areas were becoming too hard to live in and unproductive. And so people moved southward into what seemed to be more hospitable areas. Okay, and that is more or less where the so-called Pueblo civilization existed when eventually they encountered the Spanish. Okay, so it seems the Hemes people moved down more or less from the Four Corners area in probably the early 1300s and created a series of Pueblos, most importantly Giusewa, in an area that's now just north of Albuquerque and west of Santa Fe. And it was that particular Pueblo was probably founded around 1450. So uh, it was already more than 100 years old at the time when the Jemez people first began to encounter the Spanish. And the first Spanish incursion into this whole area was Coronado's uh, expedition, and then others were followed little by little, trading, exploring, and then missionizing. And the first permanent Franciscan Spanish missions were set up in what they called New Mexico, in this area inhabited by the Pueblos, in 1598. And one particular Franciscan missionary, Alonso de Lugo, uh, set up a mission specifically at Giusewa, probably alone, maybe possibly with one or two compatriots in 1598, and sort of initially lived off of the generosity and hospitality of the people of that pueblo. But as tended to happen with Spanish missionaries, little by little, the missionaries exerted more control and tried to take more and more power over the food supply and using that leverage, tried to gain uh, sort of the upper hand, control the society, and Catholicize them. Okay, so at the time when the Spanish first came into this region, which, as I said, was in the 1500s, um, there were about 100 pueblos in this area, in what's now New Mexico and Arizona. And... These pueblos uh, were multivarious, right? They didn't all speak the same language. They didn't all have the same gods. Uh, there were Zuni and Hopi and Chemes and others. Uh, it seems that at that time, there were probably seven different languages spoken at the different pueblos. And they didn't see themselves as part of any kind of larger unit. You know, they weren't, there was no ruler or empire. There was no shared religion or, or written language. Uh, it, was, it was a collection of different societies. And Pueblo is simply the Spanish word, meaning village or town. That's the Spanish word that they applied to these, uh, to these villages that were mostly built of large adobe structures. So they, they could be quite monumental, and some had thousands of people, 
but each one was was pretty separate and they didn't necessarily have that much to do with each other and so this was a very very promising mission field for the Spanish if they could manage to plant missionaries at these towns they might be able to convert significant numbers of people at one fell swoop and there was fairly little risk of pushback right there was no great capital there was no great emperor or army to fight back uh, and and even to sort of negotiate with them as equals as sometimes happened in some other american empires uh, it, they were uh, they were individually separate and hence could be easier targets right so Alonso de Lugo was established at Giusewa by about 15, by 1598. And then for a while he lived in just a small quarters called a convento and had maybe a small chapel for worship and a few ritual implements for Christian worship. Later in 1621, he and his supporters, including other missionaries and Indians built large missionary buildings, a sizable church, a, a bigger convento, and they were becoming a serious, powerful presence uh, in the Pueblo. And so it's possible that this particular chalice maybe was still there at this time, or maybe it had already been discarded and replaced with something more sophisticated, something more finely made, or something from Europe or Mexico maybe a silver chalice, maybe something with artwork or inlay. Uh, so probably this chalice we're talking about um, comes from the earliest period, right? But still, it's very symbolically important. And chalices specifically would continue to be very important and meaningful objects in all the rest of the history of the Pueblos. And, and I'll talk about why, right? So... Uh, so from 1621 till about 1630, it seemed that the the church and mission in Giusewa were growing and gaining success, gaining converts, becoming a major force, uh, much as many other missions at different pueblos were also gaining in power and followers. It seems that the uh, the church at Giusewa had a large, unusual octagonal tower which still stands, and also was richly decorated with frescoes, probably in a Spanish Baroque style, more or less, and those do not survive. However, around 1630, things got more complicated, and it seems that there were occasional small revolts and skirmishes. Several priests were killed at Giusewa in 1631, uh, and resistance grew so intense that eventually the Spanish mission simply withdrew uh, in 1639. And this again happened separately, but more or less in parallel with what was going on at many other pueblos. So it seems that similarly through the 1630s, there was growing conflict and resistance as more of the leaders uh, and uh, elites of the various pueblos grew more and more wary and skeptical of the Spanish and started to see them as more of a threat. And we don't know much in detail about how and why these conflicts broke out because the pueblos didn't, as I said, didn't have a written language. Uh, but 
1639, the Spanish uh, centered at their uh, provincial capital at Santa Fe decided that the situation was too volatile and they pulled their missionaries out of the various outlying sites and withdrew them into Santa Fe and uh, housed many of them actually at the fortified uh, governor's palace in Santa Fe, which still stands. So there was a period of sort of wary back and forth where the Spanish kind of tested the limits of what they could do, of how effectively they could convert people, of how much they could control food, how much uh, taxation they could try to extract from the pueblos. And this volatile back and forth continued through the 1640s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And by 1680, the Spanish had reasserted or tried to reassert control over much of the region, right? And was more and more trying to turn it into a centrally controlled province connected to Mexico, right? And they were using this name for it, Nuevo Mexico, New Mexico. And this was important to the Spanish, not just because they believed it was their uh, their destiny to Christianize and civilize the, the, the savages, but also because they were now more and more worried about Northern Europeans, particularly Protestant Northern Europeans, incurring into their territory in North America. So in their view, all of the Americas belonged to them, right? According to the Pope and the Treaty of Tordesillas, this, this whole continent was claimed by Spain, okay, and properly belonged to Spain to missionize and civilize, right? But now, the Northern Europeans, first French Protestants at the Fort Caroline episode that I mentioned when I talked about Florida, right, in, in uh, History of the United States in 100 Objects Number 6 about the Bronze Cannon. The French Protestants first led the way in trying to take control and colonize uh, un- areas of North America that the Spanish had not occupied. And then that was followed up very dramatically by the English and the Dutch, who now had a whole chain of colonies along the Atlantic coast that were moving and expanding little by little into the continent. So Spain was now very worried and felt tremendous pressure to stake an effective claim and to really control territory in the interior of the continent, both to maintain the legitimacy of their claim and also as a buffer to protect Mexico, which was by far bigger and more powerful and more important than the sort of small outposts farther north, right? So New Mexico was was a buffer to protect Mexico in part. So Spain is really becoming more aggressive as they are pressed on their northern frontiers. And this leads eventually to, uh, to a breaking point. So a lot of what the Spanish felt they had to combat in order to both spread Christianity and enforce their control over the pueblos was the sort of priestly elite, the kind of class of shamans who performed rituals often using ritual masks and other objects uh, in which they communicated 
with the dead, with ancestors, with gods. And these rituals tended to be performed in sort of sacred underground chambers, usually circular underground windowless chambers in which people could uh, engage in fasting, prayer, reflection, also ceremonies involving music and masks in which they might communicate with gods and spirits or, or even take on the personas of gods and spirits. So the people who performed these rituals formed a kind of shamanic caste, and they were, of course, the most direct competitors for the Catholic missionaries. And more and more, the Spanish condemned these ceremonies and these shamans as idolaters, or more and more through the course of the 1600s, condemned them as demonic and devil worshipers. Right? So they uh, attacked the kivas, right, the rooms where these rituals took place, and when they could, they also uh, imprisoned, uh, punished, humiliated these shaman priests. And at one point in the year 1680, they rounded up a large number of these shaman priests, uh, executed, I believe, four of them, if I remember correctly, and others punished by, by whipping or public humiliation, trying one way or another to suppress these traditions of worship in the Pueblos. And in this roundup in 1680, there was in particular one man who was called Pope. And Pope, it seems, after he re was released from Spanish custody, he sort of fled northward to the Taos Pueblo, which is a very large pueblo that still exists, and it was one of the northernmost. It was the northernmost large pueblo, so the farthest away from the centers of Spanish authority. And while Pope was in a kiva, right, going through this process of, of spiritual cleansing and prayer, he had a vision of three gods. And these three gods spoke to him uh, and told him their names. And their names actually are recorded because one of the participants in the uprising that soon followed was captured by the Spanish and he gave an account, he gave at least one account to the Spanish of how this uprising started, of what the inspiration was and what they were up to. And so we know that these three gods presented themselves to Pope. They told him their names and they were Aztec names. And they told Pope that they were visiting him but that they were soon going to travel underground to Lake Copala which is a lake down in Mexico, which, according to Aztec myth, is the place where the Aztec people originated. So it seems that he was taking some sort of inspiration or power from the Aztecs and, and their gods, their history. These gods apparently reportedly had fire coming out of their fingertips and other extremities, right? So they were frightening and powerful. And they told him what to do. They said, take a piece of cord and tie a long series of knots in it, and then send runners out to all the different pueblos carrying this knotted cord. Make sure that it comes to a new pueblo each day, 
and that each day that Pueblo untie one of the knots. And once all of the knots are undone, it will be time to rise up and attack and kill or drive out the Spanish. So this was a sort of clever, simple device for conveying a message to all the different Pueblos that an uprising was coming, that all of them should participate, and a way to synchronize it, right? It was a way of, of synchronizing time, which was a very difficult, complicated thing to do when you had dozens of these Pueblos spread all around the region, and it took days or weeks to convey messages among them. How do you get them all to act at once? So it seems that the Spanish actually intercepted this knotted cord and figured out roughly what was happening just two days before the appointed day. So the Pueblos managed to figure out that this had happened and rise up a day early. At least the first ones rose up a day early and then the others followed a day or two later. And the action was swift enough that they were able to pretty quickly round up Spanish missionaries, colonists, officials, soldiers. Most of them they took prisoner and then expelled and sent back to Mexico. There was some small-scale fighting, but most of it was over pretty quickly. And about 400 Spanish were killed. The, the official Spanish count was 401, but many others simply fled or were expelled out of the area. The gods apparently told Pope further instructions of what to do once they had gotten rid of the Spanish. And this inclu included, significantly, destroying Christian objects and images. So the rebels went into the mission churches at these various pueblos, and most of them they ransacked, destroyed crucifixes, communion chalices, altars and altarpieces, uh, some of it was smashed and thrown in rivers, some was burned, uh, some churches were torched. Although, you know, they're made of adobe, they don't necessarily burn very well. They also undid various acts that the church had performed in the Pueblo societies. They dissolved marriages that had been sanctified by the church, and some people uh, made new marriages. And they were instructed to bathe in rivers, to go into rivers and wash away the effects of baptismal water, holy water, holy oils, and so forth, and even to bring with them clothing and other personal items and also wash them in these rivers in order to cleanse away the remnants of Christianity. And you can see in this ritual insofar as it happened, you can see in this ritual a kind of reverse or inversion of the ceremony of baptism, almost like an unbaptism. And according to this witness who had been captured by the Spanish during the revolt, he said, quote, they thereby returned to the state of their antiquity. So there was this notion that uh, by by driving out the Spanish and by cleansing themselves of the objects and the images and the residues of Spanish Catholicism, they were going back to their ancestral way of life and back to their ancestral gods and customs. 
And according to this witness named Naranjo, he said, quote, uh, This was the better life and the one they desired, because the god of the Spaniards was worth nothing, and theirs was very strong, the Spaniards' god being rotten wood. And the benefit of this return to the old gods, the old customs before the Spanish included uh, prosperity and well-being and particularly better harvests. So it's possible that part of why this revolt happened and why these uh, rebels did the things they did was because they were having trouble with their harvests and their food supply. Now, the Spanish had been taking and requisitioning a lot of the, the food of the Pueblos. But even apart from that, if you remember, I've talked about this before, this was the depth of the Little Ice Age. Right? The 1600s was the coldest period that the Earth experienced in at least the past thousand years, maybe longer. And many peoples all around the world, including in Europe and China and elsewhere, were having real problems with their harvests and their food supplies. And so it's possible that they were in crisis already, and this is part of why they felt they had to drastically change their behaviors and their worship in order to secure better harvests. Okay. So as I said, during the revolt, many churches were sacked and looted, many priests were killed. It seems that at least for a time, the, the reports about this are not entirely consistent, and we don't have the Pueblo's own written records, so we can't know much directly. But it seems that at least for a time, even the utterance of the names Christ and Maria were forbidden. Right? So Christ, of course, is the savior figure, man and God in Christianity, and Maria, the mother of God, is extremely important in Catholicism, especially Spanish Catholicism. So she too, along with Christ, was sort of uh, stricken from the record, you might say. And it seems that Pope and his allies tried to create a new Pueblo identity to substitute for the power and hegemony that the Spanish had exerted. And this new Pueblo identity combined ancient traditions, right? Ancient forms of art, worship, ancient gods and spirits, and so on, and also new inventions. For example, you know, pottery is the most abundant and most important art form from the Pueblos. And it seems that the Pueblo artists, including the Jemez potters, moved away from the old traditional black on white style and instead began producing redware, where you cover ceramics in red clay slip to give it this, you know, iron oxide reddish brown color before firing. And this redware was adopted all around the different pueblos. So it's a sign of people trying to create a kind of pan pueblo aesthetic and maybe a new pan pueblo identity, right? Because these various pueblos had never been united in any kind of state or project or association before. This was a new experience. And even particular motifs, like the so-called double-headed key motif, which is very old, became more popular and more common all around the Pueblos during this revolt period. Many Pueblos, especially Pueblos that had Spanish missions, were totally abandoned 
and new villages were built right alongside them, directly adjacent. So there was there was even a, an effort for people to move themselves physically into new structures, and these new pueblos were rebuilt in a classic older two courtyard pattern, almost like a kind of figure eight shape surrounding two courtyards. Now these new pueblos were built in in a traditional, very old style, including uh, transport by ladders, uh, roof openings into rooms, and even in Santa Fe, after the Spanish were besieged and had to surrender Santa Fe, the Pueblo rebels took over the governor's palace and remodeled it with these traditional elements, closing up side doorways, creating roof. However, in recent years, archaeologists have also found and have pointed out that even as there was this effort to cleanse out or destroy all sorts of Spanish elements in the Pueblos, there was also a new hybridity and sort of reuse or reappropriation of many things that they had gotten from the Spanish. It was not just a complete uh, destruction. Rather, the new Pueblos, when they were built, they also incorporated corner fireplaces, which is a European custom, some, some of them running water and indoor plumbing. And many of them also used decorative objects like crosses, altars, and chalices. They clearly were not all destroyed, but many of them actually instead were collected and put in new places and given new uses and new meanings. There was a sort of reappropriation and reinterpretation of these things. And one of the leaders of the revolt, Katiti, reportedly actually collected communion chalices in his home. It's also ironic, as one historian pointed out, that if you look at the report from Naranjo, he says, well... Uh, Pope promised great new harvests of maize and squash and so on, and also melons. You will have great uh, harvests of watermelons and cantaloupes, and those were European crops that had been brought by the Spanish. If we look at the way the Pueblo peoples reused things like crosses and altars and chalices, it's unclear exactly why they kept those particular things and what they were trying to get from them and what meaning they took from them. It's possible that it may have been a kind of satire or mocking. There's actually an account uh, from one Spanish report of Pueblo rebels burning a mission church and as they destroyed it, mockingly reciting prayers, Spanish prayers. Uh, There's also a report that just after their victory, the rebel leaders, Pope and Katiti, held a public victory feast that parodied the Spanish, Okay, that sort of imitated them mockingly. And chalices played a very important role in this mocking feast. And reportedly, Pope at one point took up a chalice and toasted to the health of his ally, Katiti, and said, quote, to your paternal reverence's health. And Katiti replied, here's to your lordship's health, sir governor. So they may have been kind of mocking the sort of inflated titles and absurd ceremonies of the Spanish as they proclaimed their victory. 
did they do this purely as a big joke? Or maybe did they believe that they were also kind of borrowing the power, channeling the power of the Spanish people, appropriating it in their own hands in much the same way that it seems the shaman priests would do when they communed with gods and spirits in their kivas. There was this notion that by imitating, by putting on the mask, literally or figuratively, of a spirit, a god, an ancestor, you were somehow borrowing their power. So it may be one or or the other or both of these may be the reason why they kept many of these things. And there's a particularly odd story as well that in some form is reflected both in the Spanish records and in indigenous oral history, where it seems a lot of Spanish Catholicism survived in some form, at least in some Pueblos. So according to Diego de Vargas, uh, he arrived at the Zuni Pueblo in 1692 with the intention of putting down the rebel leadership and reimposing Spanish control. So the period of Pueblo independence lasted for at least 12 years from 1680 to 1692 when uh, these Pueblos were Uh, self-governing under this new rebel leadership, led particularly by Pope, the Spanish slowly started to make forays back into what they called New Mexico, trying to counter this revolt and reimpose Spanish control with the help of about a thousand or so troops from Spain. And this took a while, and it seems that some sites were brought back under Spanish domination in 1692, and then there was a slow reconquest until 1694. And the Zuni Pueblo was one of the first places that these Spanish reconquerors came to. And the Zuni, like many other Pueblo people, had actually withdrawn from their older Pueblo and rebuilt new ones in more fortified, higher sites on mesas, right, that they believed would be more defensible against the Spanish when they eventually came back. So uh, so Diego de Vargas arrives at this Zuni Pueblo in 1692, and the people there lead him, for whatever reason, reportedly, they lead him to an altar. They take him to a room in the interior of one of the Pueblo buildings. They withdraw a curtain, and he sees an altar with, quote, a large pair of crucifixes with bronze figures of Jesus, four chalices for mass, bells and candlesticks, a painting of John the Baptist, a silver monstrance for the benediction service, and more than a dozen Christian religious books. So is this true? Was Vargas, you know, falsely inflating what he saw to try to inspire confidence among the Spanish that some Pueblo people had remained loyal to Catholicism? Uh, We don't know. His account also makes no mention of these objects actually being actively used or of any Christian clergy being there to, to perform worship. However, the Zuni people themselves have a story that might correspond to what Vargas reported. So according to Zuni oral history, a priest whom they called Juan Greyrobe, and Franciscans tended to wear, you know, 
plain gray habits. Juan Greyrobe was a missionary at the Zuni Pueblo at the time of the revolt, and he survived. He was not killed and he was not expelled because he abjured the faith and became a Zuni and adopted Zuni practices and customs. And so he was allowed to stay, and he stayed on until the Spanish returned. And eventually when the Spanish returned, they recognized him because of his mastery of writing. Is that true? It's possible. It could be true. If it's true, then according to Spanish law and according to canon law, he should have been tried and executed as a heretic if he actually did abjure the Christian faith and participate in Zuni worship. Uh, that would make him a heretic. You know, we don't know. Maybe that happened, but as far as I know, there's no record of it. Uh, but anyway, both of these stories seem as if they might corroborate one another, that maybe in some way, privately, someone continued to either practice Catholicism or at least preserve a Catholic altar in this particular Pueblo. And again, chalices are the sort of great symbols of the communion service and of the survival of, of Christianity and the survival of this direct connection to Christ himself through the Eucharist, through the Eucharistic wine. So the Pueblo revolt, you know, is not all that widely known among Americans, right? Even though some like to call it the first American revolution. It was the first time that people in the North American continent rose up and successfully overthrew, at least for a time, overthrew European control. And it, in a really interesting way, it laid the groundwork for a kind of new society and a new civilization that might never have existed if not for this conflict with the Spanish. It created this identity of being Pueblo, right, of, of belonging to a certain kind of society, of having certain shared customs, traditions, and identity. And this is the sort of thing that happens many times in many parts of the world, right, that people forge a group identity for the first time when they're confronted with a collective enemy or collective outsider. And when these new identities are created, they're not simply continuations or carbon copies of exactly what had existed before. There's always some sort of innovation. There's always some sort of new idea, new vision that comes out of the encounter with a different society and with outsiders, right? And as other scholars have pointed out, it's very important that even in Pope's vision of the, the gods who told him to rise up against the Spanish, they were apparently Mexican gods, figures that you never hear of being revered or worshipped in the Pueblo societies before that point. This was a new kind of, a new sense a new identity being created, right, in this, in this revolt. And the situation, the sort of encounter of different societies that you see leading up to the revolt, I think is embodied a lot in that chalice, right, that very early, comparatively crude vessel. So I hope you enjoyed hearing about this chalice and its 
possible meaning and significance, and encourage friends, neighbors, family to, to see what they think and become a patron and have access to all of these. Thank you. Thank you.